Good evening, family. Good evening, church, saints, beloved people of God, people highly favored by God. And um, yeah, it's really my privilege just to be sharing with you guys tonight as we're speaking on church. And um, for me, I really feel privileged. Thank you for that kind words. And I, I really appreciate it because, I've, because it's true to me also. Um, this family has meant so much to me, and I can tell you story upon story just how the generosity of this family, this family's prayers encouraged me uh, even recently again and just made me the person I am today. And I thank God that he, that he added me to this family. I really feel privileged. And um, as we're going to be exploring on, on what it means to be church and family, I, I find it fascinating how the Bible actually has this very high view of what it means to be church. I read the Bible sometimes and I think, wow, that the Bible actually places the emphasis on what it means to be church so high. In some places it refers to the church, the body, us. Of course, I'm not meaning the building. It's you, it's faces, it's smiles, it's the beloved people of God. In some places it, it places uh, the church on the same level as Jesus himself, saying that we are the body of Christ. And we are the, 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 the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking of that example where Jesus said, you know, he who did one small thing to one of the least of these disciples of mine, it's like he did it to me. And so I, I really, I'm, I'm inspired um, by that. And I'm, I'm praying that, that tonight will, uh, just a bit of that, that view of what it means to be church will be imparted to, to us as we share together. And I want to thank you guys for the way you love and serve Jesus. I'm inspired by you. We celebrate moments like these, and I'm like, yes. You know, although I had nothing to do with that, I had. Because we're together. In, in, in making disciples, that's, that's the beauty of it. We can do this together with God. So thank you for the way that you inspire me in loving Jesus. And I feel really privileged to be a part of it. Okay, so... We are in uh, the book of Revelation, silent S, no, I'm joking. Okay, so Wesley quickly just introduced it, and we are looking at what the book of Revelation, the first part of it really, Jesus is, is speaking to the church. And um, just a quick understanding about the book of Revelation. I know Revelation isn't one of those books you want to go have a lie down in the hammock with, and some, some, some casual reading. It really takes some understanding, right? Um, you can go to that first verse there, which, which gives us a little bit pur a purpose of this book. In Revelation 1 verse 1, it says that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So this word, revelation, is the word apocalypsis. Of course, where we get the word apocal apocalypse, right? Referring to, yeah, <laughs> referring to end time things. And we, of course, know the, the book is full of end time things. But the word itself actually means revelation. The act of disclosing or discovering something 
that was before not known to them. So what's important also in understanding this book, it's, it's sort of like a genre. Um, and this genre was well known to the people who firstly read it. Um, Apocalypses, you can find other Old Testament writings like the book of Daniel. Um, in the narrative, you also find him writing these prophetic visions. Okay, and so um, when, you, when you understand that, it, it, it makes it a little bit easier to, to read and understand. You'll find a lot of symbolism in this book. And you'll find a lot of things referring back to Old Testament images. So this is a bit of just a key to, to understand the book. I'll, I'll color it in a bit more. And like Wesley said, it's a, the revelation of Jesus, first and foremost. We get to see what the, the resurrected, glorified Jesus is like. And then also, especially this first part and what we're doing is we get to see what the church is like. It's almost the revelation of the church and how Jesus sees the church and how he wants to make sure that the church is acting in a way that it should, that the church is knowing what it, what it really should be looking like. And um, these are these letters that we are going to get into. So um, every letter has these se seven elements, kind of like a pattern. It's also there, and uh, if you can read that, it's a bit small. But you're going to see every letter kind of follows this pattern. It's the name of the church, then the title of Christ. And so interesting, this title always has a specific, it fits the situation very well. So Jesus is revealing himself or a certain characteristic about him that really fits the situation well. Thirdly is accommodation, a well done, a thumbs up. And then number four is a concern. Five is the exhortation or a warning. And um, number six is a promise to overcome. And seven, it ends off with this phrase that you've probably heard that by now. It says that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the, to the churches. So quickly touch your ear. And um, it's, this is basically, and Wesley also said it, this is true for us. This letter was not just addressed to one church. All of the churches read the same letter. And so I believe the Holy Spirit inspired this writing also for us to sit here tonight. It says, he who has an ear. You guys all touched your ears. You have. So it's for us. And I want you to do something different tonight. I want you to listen with a different set of ears. Normally we come to church and we listen about like, how does this benefit me? You know, individually, with our Western maybe way of thinking. But I want you to, to listen with a different ear tonight. I want you to look around and I want you to listen on behalf of the person next to you. I want you to listen on how does this affect us as church. I, I, I honestly believe this is, this is the way this was meant to be heard and meant to be, to be read. So can we do that? Okay, so quickly a recap on the last two churches. You can show the map there. And so we see on the western side of Turkey... Um, last week you spoke about Ephesus and then Smyrna and tonight we're at Pergamos. Okay, the church in Pergamum. And so I've titled, let me just quickly, so the first week was saying Ephesus was about devotion. Um, they were doing all the right things but they were missing Jesus in the midst and Jesus was calling them back to him. Secondly, last week was a church in Smyrna to to endure persecution, this church was undergoing 
heavy persecution. And Jesus was encouraging them to stay faithful to him. And so tonight, Pergamon, uh, I've titled it A Pure Identity Amidst Promiscuous Idolatry. So before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you uh, for tonight. And I pray that you bless the reading of your word. And I pray that you give us ear, ears to hear what you are saying to the churches and how it is also applicable to us as church family here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So can I ask that you guys stand as we read together, as we honor the word of God um, in doing so. I'm gonna read for us. All right. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amen. You guys can see. Sit. May God bless the reading of his word. And so the first... First, what we're going to explore is this title that Jesus chooses to reveal himself to the church. Okay, and he says in Revelation 2 verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has, a, who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so this was explored a little bit earlier in the letter also. And now I told you that Revelation is full of symbolism of the Old Testament. So you can literally just Google sharp two-edged sword Old Testament. And it'll give you a lot of things, which is just rich. I'm gonna give you one where I think we're gonna find the meaning of what does this mean. It's in Psalm 149, verse six to seven. And it says, may the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the people. To bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. So if I'd ask you a question, what do you think this double-edged sword is symbolic for? According to this and you know, many of the other examples, it's a picture of Jesus as the ultimate judge. Here Jesus' revelation is revealing to this church that he is the ultimate judge. And that he is the one who has the final say. He is the one to carry out the sentence, to, to, to bring vengeance where there is needed. And so like I said, this picture is very fitting for this occasion. What you'll find is why? Why this stern warning for this church? Jesus was warning them of judgment. Jesus was telling them, I am the real judge. It's not the people that you're fearing you're fearing their judgment. But I am the one who's, who's the ultimate judge. I am the one to be feared. 
And how does he bring judgment? You, you probably know this. This scripture, it's in Hebrews 4 verse 12. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision, soul, and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of heart. So there's a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth which represents judgment. And how does he judge? With the word of God, with the truth of God, the standard of God. This is created God who spoke everything into being. And Jesus is saying that eventually I am the one who's also going to have the last say when it comes to divine judgment. It's interesting, this verse speaks about how it doesn't just it doesn't just judge on the surface level. It judges the deep thoughts and attitudes of people. That thing that you think no one can see. That secret fancy, whatever that is. We spoke about it in, in, in actually in Connect Group this week. How, how, do, how, does, how does the fact that God sees your, your, your thoughts, how does that impact the way you think? Have you thought about that? This is why I believe David wrote that he says, let, let the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. You see, so judgment always also, it's not just surface level, it goes to the deeper side of your intentions. And someone once said, is, you don't read the Bible, the Bible reads you. And um, I, yeah, I, I find that, that quite true. Second point there is commendation. Jesus was commending them. He was saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So what's repeated here is this, this, this thing about where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. So the city of Pergamum, uh, interesting, is, was called the city of the serpent. Now, uh, for those of you who are medical students, just quickly put up your hands. There's a few of you. So you guys would probably know the Asclepian. It's a snake with around this, um, this staff, right? So this is one of the, the gods, a god of healing, Asclepius, that was, um, that was worshipped at, at Pergamum. You can actually just go to, the, to the, the picture there of Pergamum. It's the next slide. So it's very, it's interesting. The city was built on top of this hill and just full of temples worshiping different foreign gods. And um, one of these gods was, was this uh, Asclepius, the god of, of healing. Um, also was known for the birthplace of Zeus. He was like the main Greek god. You guys probably also know him. And there was this huge altar. Go to the next slide. So um, to the right there, you'll see Asclepius with that snake around his staff. And there, that was the altar of Zeus. Uh, which was there, and so most scholars and commentators refer to that as possibly the, the seat, the throne of, of Satan. And so what you need to know about the city, this city, if, if, if Ephesus was the great political center and Smyrna was a commercial center, this um, specific place was the religious center. This was where the worship happened. This is where the thinking about worship originated. People traveled here to come and worship specifically. So you can imagine just riddled with all kinds of worship of different things, a multiplicity of gods. And um, they also, what's interesting is they worshiped the Roman emperors. They worshiped men like as if they were gods. There were temples built for these humans 
which they sacrificed to, which they prayed to, which they deified. And so I think it's interesting, in a, you know, one, one way to think about idolatry is when we make God in our image. And so this place, of course, full of temples, there was temple prostitution happening, um, all kinds of, of, of vile ways of particip- participating in this worship. Uh, one of the things that they also did was um, they sacrificed animals to these gods, which they would then uh, make a meal of as you participate in worship, or they'd sell these meats down at the market. And this is one of the things that, that was mentioned as we read. But they were commended for this, and in this situation, they were holding fast to the name of Jesus. It was not an easy place to be a Christian. So it mentioned this guy Antipas, and um, it's traditionally, I read a little bit about him, traditionally was known as the bishop, the leader there. And it was said that his prayers actually drove, drove out so many demonic spirits, uh, so much so that they, there was demonic spirits that actually appeared to the pagan priests and said, hey, you know, this Antipas guy is creating a bit of a, a situation for us. Can you guys maybe sort him out for us? And um, so the story goes that they, they cornered him and they, they, they asked him to, to worship to one of the emperors, which he, of course, declined. And he was killed. Um, it's interesting that it says that Antipas, my faithful witness. Just hear he, Jesus' words for Antipas. And even earlier in the, in the letter, this was referring to Jesus himself, Jesus, the faithful witness. So just quickly there, I thought I'd share, just for interest's sake, this is one of the ways they tortured people. Um, so also traditionally, they would, they would put, the, put the victim in this brazen bull, uh, like a copper bull, and they'd heat it up. And so the person would literally cook um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why they think the throne of Satan was this Zeus altar because there was something like that on his uh, on the uh, part of the the worship and yeah that's horrible and uh, apparently Antipas' last sounds was was heard as he was praying for his church so this was a, not an easy place to be a Christian you can imagine but these guys were commended for at least they were holding on to the faith that Jesus was saying. But then, but, there's number four, a concern. And uh, Revelation 2 verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. Remember the first church, Jesus just said, I have one thing against you, that you've missed me. But here it says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So just quickly, again, another Old Testament um, example or, 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 or vision uh, that Jesus is referring to, this Balaam. It's in, the, it's in Numbers 22 to 24, if you want to go read for yourselves. But Balaam was kind of like a soothsayer, kind of like a modern-day Sangoma. And this King Balak, who was the king of the... Did I say something wrong? He was the, he was the king of the Moabites. Right? And so he hired this Balaam guy to come and curse Israel. Um, there's this interesting story about a donkey who speaks. I'm not going to go into that now. But eventually he was getting there and he couldn't do it. Um, God stopped him and he ended up blessing Israel. And so that plan didn't work, but they reverted to something else. He, he kind of gave the inside scoop to the king on how to get Israel defiled. And so he, he 
he, um, he told the king to, to let some of your beautiful women just camp around the, the sides of the, the Israelite camp. And in such a way they could entice the people to eventually to marry them and to eventually start serving their gods. So it was a, a lot of a more subtle approach. And so that's the example that Jesus is giving here. It's a subtle approach of just mixing with the world and mixing this Christianity with what was going on in the midst there. They were participating in this culture and it was wrong. So what the devil couldn't achieve in Smyrna by just direct persecution, he did now in a more subtle way, just to bring in some temptation, just to bring in marriage with the world, spiritual immorality, a compromise. Because if he could change the way the church looked, if the, if the church started looking more like the world, they'd lose their, they'd lose their basically it wouldn't be church anymore. And um, yeah, to carry on, verse 15 says, so you also have some to hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So I think this was putting it in the same essence. The Nicolaitans were, were these people who thought uh, everything's okay. We, can, we have freedom in Christ. He forgives us. We can just, we can participate. You know, it's a part of relating to the culture. You know, it's a, it's a way of um, becoming becoming all things to everyone so that we can reach. And so Jesus was, 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 was clearly against this. And um, this, as a church, they were tolerating this. This is what he's saying. They were tolerating this, and what you tolerate will overtake. I think of the example of, of, of weeds. You know, it's, it starts small, and ugh, you know, next time I'll get it. And um, what eventually starts happening is it starts taking over. And it starts choking what you actually planted. And so I think this is very uh, um, good for us because we live in a day and age where tolerance is, is key. We, we tolerate a bunch of things. And what we don't realize is slowly, slowly and steadily, these things will start influencing us, just like this example of Balaam. You know, there's another saying that man's fall is subtle but sudden. It starts with a, a glance maybe and then a, then a look and then a bit of a stare and then a handshake and then a hug. And, you know, next thing you know, <laughs> you're like, how did I get here? But it's just that slow and I think that's the, that's the enemy strategy which was true for this church and I, I think it's prevalent for us in our day in society. So then we get to an exhortation. A warning, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. It's calling them to repent. So what is repentance? We can say a lot about what repentance is, but repentance is a deliberate decision to change the way you think about something, to change what you believe, which will actually affect your attitudes, how you feel about something, which will lead to how you behave differently. So repentance is, isn't just saying sorry or feeling sorry. It, it, it means change on all certain levels. Jesus is asking them to change, to repent, change the way they see this. Maybe you, you thought this was tolerable, but I want you to realize this is not tolerable. I want you to start thinking differently. I want your attitude to change. Maybe you thought this was a neutral thing. But I want you to 
to become aware that this thing is robbing you. I want you to become angry towards this because it's stealing from you. And I think when you get there, the behavior will just follow. So that's what repentance is. Jesus was calling them to repent, to change. And, and here he's mentioning again the sword of the mouth. Remember judgment. He's saying, repent or else. He's saying, I love you so much. If you are not going to deal with it, I am going to deal with it. And this is the most loving thing that Jesus could do. And I think maybe this picture of who Jesus is is a bit new to us, calling us to repent, <laughs> to change. Doesn't Jesus accept us for who we are? Jesus loves you so much. He has a, such a high view of us as church that he wants you to repent, to become purified. You know, it was interesting just to, to go back a little bit. Um, it was saying there's some among you. It's saying everyone. It's saying I have some things against you. There is some among you. Remember I asked us to, to listen a bit differently, right? So we, we normally think that, that my sin isn't affecting the whole group. We, we normally think that, you know, it's just me. No one sees this. Um, isn't that a lie? Isn't that exactly what the enemy wants us to believe? That my private sin is not affecting us as church. Friends, I tell you, it is. And that's what Jesus, this is what, what's true in, in, in this part also. Your sin is keeping you away from being church. It's keeping you away from also being fruitful. Being an encourager, being part of family. It'll, it'll seclude you to a space where you're where you unfruitful. And we are called to be, to be fruitful. Number six, he who has an ear, let him hear. And I, I think I addressed that. The Holy Spirit wants us. That's why this is such a, a it, it's actually so accurate for us, all these letters. And then a promise to the overcomer. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, Old Testament example of manna. So traditionally also, um, Jewish beliefs has it, and also there was some hana, ach, manna, uh, left in the, the Ark of the Covenant, which someone hid away uh, at the destruction of the temple. No one knows where the Ark is these days. It's just interesting, but... What Jesus is referring to here, also Old Testament example of, of himself. Manna was bread that came from heaven. I think of that example where Jesus said, I am the true bread that came from heaven. He who has part in me, who you partakes of me has life, eternal life. So Jesus is, is saying here that, that in him, he's giving a promise that in him there is life. Then he speaks about this white stone, which is also interesting. And, and some of the commentators say that even in the, um, the setting of the culture of Pergamum, you used to get a white stone when you participate in a worship of, of a deity at a temple. And um, this would signify fellowship. Fellowship with, with, with whatever God. So it might be that he was, he was appealing to, to that culture 
another thought was this white stone represented forgiveness in a judicial sense that if you were forgiven, you were given a white stone, which meant that you were cleared from all, from all sin or, or, or previous allegations. So just in the context here, the, the reward is fellowship. The reward is, is a, a union with Christ, a closeness, a walk with him. So that's our scripture, and I, I want to just conclude by going through this again. So first of all, a revelation of him. Jesus wants us to know who he is, and he reveals himself here as the ultimate judge, the ultimate one who needs to be feared. You know what's interesting is the, the person who wrote this, the, the apostle John, he was known for the guy who was close to Jesus. You know, the one reclining on him at the, the, the Lord's Supper. If you read in the Revelations, it says when he saw the glorified Christ, he fell down before his feet like a dead man. So there's an there's a, there's a, there's a interesting scenario here because what's our picture of Jesus? Do we need a new revelation of him? Because we become what we worship. And is our Jesus tolerating things in our lives that that, that Jesus would not. He's encouraging us. Matthew 10, 28, it says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So hell isn't something we like talking about, right? Did you know Jesus spoke more about hell than any other character in the New Testament? Why? Probably because he's seen it. Probably because he's the only one who really knows the reality of it. So it would be unloving for him not to warn people of judgment. I think, you know, we, we, we try and think tolerance is, is the language of love. Jesus wasn't tolerant. He was giving people truth. And it was the greatest act of love he could do. Giving people truth in the face of ridicule that can maybe alter their eternity. That's the most loving thing you can do. This is a picture of Jesus that we need to, to change in our hearts. He loves you so much. That's why he wants to, to give you truth. Second thing there is, um, he wants you to know that he knows. As he told this church, I know where you, where you live, where you, where you stay. And it might feel to you that your, your situation is the, the throne of Satan. Um, you might live in you know, a, a situation where, where there's family chaos at, at home. There's nothing that Jesus does not know about you. He knows. And he wants you to hold fast to him. He sees everything. And then three, are there things in your life which is improper for you as a Christian? Is there things in your life that, that Jesus wants to put his um, attention to here tonight? Is there things that's, that's keeping you away from your sincere and pure devotion with him? Is there things where you're mixing with the culture and the norms of this world? You know, modern day idols, I've put a thing there is uh, that's modern day idols and you know it's hard to really distinguish I, I bet if I take a if I take your bank statement and I check your schedule that's going to give us a, a greater understanding to the things you might be worshipping but these things are sometimes so subtle 
And, um, you know, it's adultery in, a, in its plain sense. It's adultery. It's a worship of something else. James 4 verse 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And the flip side of that is true. So those who choose friendship with God will become an enemy of the world. And like this, Christians in the first century, they weren't persecuted just for being Christian. They were persecuted for being exclusively Christian. Because once you do that, you naturally offend people. You naturally offend people. It's like you, oh, you, you better than us now. You, you, okay. You know, you get that kind of approach. Um, Matthew 5, 11, it says, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad because great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets which were before you. Second Timothy 3 verse 12, it says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus, will be prosecuted. Interesting verse, right? So there's a, there's a decision to be made. We will we be exclusively what we were meant to be as church, as a beloved bride of Christ. Will we face ridicule, embarrassment, rejection, exclusion for the sake of, of honoring God? And um, yeah, we live in a day and age, like I said, where everyone's opinions matter. All truth comes on the same level. An illustration, just to kind of prove my point, is I want to show you this lady, Alice Ann Bailey. It looks like a really nice lady, eh? It looks like she could probably make a nice malfa pudding, right? <laughs> so this lady is pretty much responsible for what we know as the New Age movement. Her writings are authoritative, which basically... Um, which formed the New Age movement. She lived in 1818 to, to 1950. And so the New Age movement, it promotes values of universal brotherhood and social improvement. Looks good on the outside. Alice Bailey also founded the Lucius Trust, which was formerly known as the Lucifer Publishing Company, 1922. You go to the next slide. So some of the purposes for their charter... That looks dodgy. I mean, that just looks dodgy. <laughs> Go to the next slide. This is some of the, 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 the strategies. Take God and pray out of the education system. Reduce parental authority over children. Destroy the family structure. I'm not going to go into everything. But we can see how these affects in our day and age. We, it's there. I'll read it. Okay. Destroy the family structure. If sex is free, make abortion legal and easy. Make divorce easy and legal. Make homosexuality an alternate lifestyle. Debase art, make it run mad. Use media to promote and change mindsets. Create an interfaith movement. Get governments to make all these laws and get the church to endorse these changes. We've seen this, eh? Same strategy the enemy is using, the one of Balaam. To come in subtly. And what are we to do as church, friends? Will we allow that to affect us? Will we allow that to change us? To subtly, we tolerate that? We tolerate that? Ah, oh, yeah, just tolerate. 
we get the, you know, and, and it speaks into the Bible to be relative. Have we lowered the, the value of truth, a biblical authoritative voice, God's judgment? And I think that's why, again, this, this picture of Jesus is judging with the word, with the standard, with the truth of God. A church that looks like the world cannot change the world. Think about light and darkness. That example says you're called to be light of the world. How much different is light than darkness? Is it just, is it, some, is it a little bit like, it's this picture of are we looking like the world? Jesus is calling us to repentance. Change your thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors. The way you dress, is that according to the world or according to God's standard? The way you speak, the words you use, is that according to the world culture or is that according to, to God's standards? What you tolerate, is that according to, to God's standards? Are you a Christian holding fast to the name of Jesus or are you proclaiming his name? I think we can sometimes repent from the things that we think is sin, but also from the things that we're not pursuing. We're not standing up for for those things that are right. Being church is also being church. It's not avoiding something. Holiness isn't about avoiding sin. Holiness is what you give yourself for. Holiness is to be set apart for the work of God. What is he wanting us as church to be actively pursuing? To permeate this culture, we should be the ones who are still the light and the soul of this world. Know that this is Jesus' heart for you to remind you of who you are because he loves you. Okay. And then the promise to overcome. Jesus says that he promises to everyone who stays faithful. He is with you. Fellowship. So let's have a moment of just self-reflection. I want to ask you just to close your eyes. And I want you to not think how this personally affects you. I want you to think how this affects us as church. How does this affect us? Do you need to change the way, do we need to change the way we see Jesus? Do we need a a greater revelation of Jesus? Is there things that God is putting his, his attention on right now that you know that's affecting you personally but it's also affecting us as church? Is, is there an area where you need to repent? To change the way you think? Change the way you feel? Change the way you behave about something? Is there areas that you've been tolerating? Are you experiencing Jesus' words as loving, as encouraging? Because it's the goodness of God 
that leads you to repentance. That's why Jesus does not want sin in our midst. He hates it because he loves you. He hates it because it destroys us. He does not tolerate it. inviting us to a life that is church his beloved people let's have a moment to pray and I just as you're sitting there with your with your head bowed I, I want to pray for two people and if there's anyone here tonight who has never given their lives to God who's never surrendered and just wants to to make right with him tonight is a night if there's anyone would you just raise your hands I'd love to pray with you if you've never if you've never given your heart to Christ never responded to the to the good news of him saving you is there anyone okay see that hand there's more just close your eyes let's pray thank you Lord Jesus for a moment of your truth where we can see your love Lord and those of you making this decision just pray after me Lord I thank you for salvation and I thank you that you saved me Thank you that you love me. And right now, I surrender my life into your hands. I make you Lord of my life and I choose to follow you and you alone. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Second, um, second people I want to pray with is, is if you feel there's, there's a there's an area of your life where you need to repent from where Jesus has has put something he's touched an area of your life he's he's illuminated that just in in me speaking tonight and if you feel you need to repent just all eyes closed I just want to know who am I praying with can you raise your hand nice and high I want to pray with you that's you friend I encourage you to pray this prayer with me from the bottom of your heart Lord Jesus thank you for your truth thank you that it sets us free and right now I want to come and repent of my sin or anything that is that you've illuminated in my heart something that I've been tolerating maybe something in the world that I've been flirting with I want to surrender that right now change the way I think about it I change the way I feel about it and I change the way I behave in it thank you for your forgiveness Lord and I pray that this forgiveness will empower me to live from now on it's not about me trying harder Lord 
It's about me surrendering to you. Thank you for a moment of freedom and refreshment. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to pray for you and then I'll finish off. You can come up so long. Father, thank you for just a moment of refreshment. Thank you that you say in your word, Lord, when repentance happens, there's a, there's a moment of refreshment. So I pray right now for a, for a moment of refreshment in your word. A moment of not shame or humiliation, but a moment of, of, of again, intimacy with you. That which was, was, was in the way that was, was stealing our confidence for you, that's removed by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord for your word and your truth that brings freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.